This is Creativity in Captivity, and I'm Pat Hazel. Today's guest writes inspiring books, speaks internationally on creativity, productivity, and maintaining passion for work. He considers himself an arms dealer for the creative revolution. He's the author of The Accidental Creative, Die Empty, and Hurting Tigers. His new book, The Daily Creative, is a practical guide for staying prolific, brilliant, and healthy. He has his own podcast with over 10 million downloads. It's The Accidental Creative. Coming up is my purposeful conversation with creativity guru, Todd Henry. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free. You're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. Welcome to the program, Todd Henry. Pat, it is so good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I had to invite you. Number one, you're like in the senior class of creative gurus. And we've had a few other authors that I like. And people have said to me, you should have Todd Henry on your show. And I was like, hey, any referral like that, I'd jump at. You know, that's really kind of you. And it, it really means a lot. I, one of the things that inspires me is when practitioners like yourself, someone who's actually out there, you've been doing it, you're in the trenches, you know what it takes to deliver over and over and over again under deadline. When somebody like you says, okay, I resonate with your work. That's what means the world to me, because that's really who I'm trying to reach, right? I'm trying to reach people who understand that pressure of having to create every day. Yeah. And it's interesting that you say the word pressure because if you are a person that does it regularly, there's a release. That pressure is not, it's still there, but it's not the same because as they say, I get to do it. I don't have to do it. Yeah. Right. I, I think not every, like every project doesn't feel as imminently urgent. If you know, there's another one coming down the line tomorrow. Yeah. Right. I'll tell you what the pandemic actually caused a cause for panic in that the break stopped on a lot of things. They stopped. Uh, for me, performance went away, directing went away, production went away. And you kind of look at your toolkit and you go, oh, wait, everything I do relates to people gathering. And now they're not gathering and I'm not, I don't have any value. But then it occurred to me, I don't have venues, but I have a voice. And I will say that I picked up your book, Accidental Creative, many years ago. And that always reminded me that, oh, I can always write and I can always be thinking of something. And this podcast was a result of that, which was, oh, I have this great creative network and it's very hopeful to find out what's in development and how are other people managing it. And I think that those expectations of ourselves, we always push ourselves to be busy and feel that makes us more attractive. But ultimately, Tim, it's an internal set of creation that keeps you buoyant. Absolutely. Well, and that busyness can be a blessing and a curse, right? The blessing of it is when times are good, it's nice to have some funds and some cash, but when times slow down, like they did for all of us, and I'm, I'm, I'm in the same boat. Like most of my business is about people getting together. It's about events, speaking at events and doing training and that kind of thing. It really forced, I think many of us who are in that space. I have musician friends. I have music producer friends. I have filmmaker friends. I have comedian friends. I have friends who are in that live performing space and every one of them had to stop and think, okay, what business am I really in? Am I in the live event business, like the gathering business, or is there something different that I'm really doing here? And I think for many of us, like, like you did, you know, you started a podcast, what, what assets do I have and how do I leverage those assets to continue to do the thing I do, regardless of it's in a completely different form. And so 
An example from my world, I had shunned virtual presentations for years for a couple of reasons. First of all, because live events, I just love them. I love being in a room with thousands of people. I mean, there's nothing that replaces that energy. And also I was just kind of worried it was going to cannibalize my core business, which was charging people money to show up and do a thing in a place. Right, right. And I realized, wow, this is a huge opportunity to rethink what training and teaching and inspiring people can look like. And so we really went all in on building a studio and multiple camera angles and like live production quality and stuff. And actually, I really love it now, but I never would have discovered that had it not been for having to slam the brakes on. And so that, I don't want to call it a gift because the pandemic was horrible and so many people, you know, suffered in so many ways, but some of the gifts that we can find coming out of times like that are these moments where we're forced to innovate and have to rethink what we do. It ultimately shines a light on what is your purpose? What is your passion? And what really gives you happiness? Because when you take away the superficial activities and really have to look at the core, simple parts of life, it does make you go, oh, I don't know if I really enjoyed all of that. And I love traveling and that as well. And by the way, I'm a outspoken shunner of the virtual. As a comedian, Zoom sure. is literally the worst medium because sure. it cuts to a guy feeding his horse or somebody blending a drink or, and you just, it's brutal. <laughs> or the other thing that's funny is watching people who now take it for granted and they'll have a, their spouse will be walking by in the background with a towel on, or it's a whole different way right. of programming with a lot of distractions. However, yes. that being said, what you just said earlier is you have all this dazzling dynamic way of using studio, but in the end, your ideation and your inspiration is what people take home with them. Yes. The fun for you and for them is being in a live place, surfing a real wave. Absolutely. And when you do that on virtual, you don't have that adrenaline rush, but they can get the same content and they can take it to the next level. Right. And that's one of the things I'll say about your new book. The Daily Creative has taken your accidental creative to a new level of being a Sherpa guide on a daily basis to take yeah. people up to the next plateau and to remind them that you need some consistency and you need to do this today and tomorrow and the next day to where it becomes ritual in a way. You know, I was inspired a number of years ago by a Gretchen Rubin quote, actually. Boy, it hit me between the eyeballs. She said, what you do every day matters more than what you do once in a while. I use that quote all the time. I, I borrow it. I wish I could buy it from her because I love that quote so much. What you do every day matters more than what you do once in a while. And I have seen this proven out over and over and over again, the lives of successful creative professionals. You know, we love the creative part of that moniker. We don't like the professional part of that moniker, which means it's our job to show up every day and to do what is necessary to get the job done. And the people who do that effectively are people who have daily practices, daily rituals, daily rhythms. They may not call them that, but they do. They have something in their life that they do every single day that grounds them, that keeps them inspired, that helps them think in new ways, helps them connect with other people, you know, helps them combine and play with ideas in a meaningful way. Especially younger people in the workplace that I encounter think that creativity is just like a spigot. It's just a talent. I just have it. And then 
five or seven or 10 years down the line, they suddenly realize, oh, <laughs> what I took for granted, it's not there anymore. It's not like turning on the water faucet, right? It requires something different to sustain over time. Talent will only get you so far. It's your daily practices that sustain you. And so I wanted with this book, I really wanted to create a really usable way for people to have a daily practice around creativity and just give them a thought, an idea, a practice, a question, something that they can consider every day. I would compare it to being muscular in a way. That's the idea is you're building a creativity muscle that you can flex when you need it. In your accidental creative book, you talk about, I guess, in the subtitle, how to be brilliant at a moment's notice. And really it's like wit or any number of things, which is if you're doing it a lot, it really comes instinctually. And when you're not, all kinds of self-sabotage and does what I have to say have value. All of those things can get in the way of a hair trigger, great response or a quick burst of energy and ideas by keeping that muscle flexed. What was interesting is the pandemic really kind of highlighted that for a lot of us. I think somebody who spends time in live environments, you know, making people laugh like yourself, you know that some of those moments are the result of just the convergence of circumstances. You have something happens and something else happens and you saw something the other day and boom, it just clicks. Part of it is your talent because you've been doing it long enough or your skill because you've been doing it long enough that you know what to look for. Part of it is the ability to self-edit so that you know what's likely to land and what's not. But part of it is just that dangerous intersection, that creative accident that happened where you wandered into a situation, two things happened, and you had just the right stimulus to pull from at the right moment to drop down a perfect joke. Well, when the world slowed down, that stimulus slowed down. When the world slowed down, we weren't experiencing those dangerous intersections because we weren't around people just popcorning and experiencing things. And I know a lot of people who went into a pretty deep funk, not because of the pandemic or not because of like the economy, but just because like, I don't have all this stuff in my life anymore that's spurring me on creatively. And it gets really difficult to generate ideas when you don't have those raw materials or those circumstances to draw from. Yeah. The thing that really did jazz me up was when I saw this 10 or 11 year old drummer, Nandy Bushell, challenging Dave Grohl to a drum off. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it was so great to watch that interchange with her, watching her present the throwdown and then doing this killer drum solo. Dave Grohl responds to her and then eventually it leads to the Foo Fighters inviting her to play with them. And now she's actually gonna be playing at a tribute show because they lost their drummer, Taylor Hawkins. Mm. So, I mean, it's amazing that all of that came from a little girl's drumming inspiration. And now with the democratization of video distribution, wherever she's able to get it into the hands and that relationship, it's more than a happy accident. It's something that is meant to be, but it comes from a nucleus that somebody takes a risk with talent at the moment She put it out there. She was poised. And I loved how they interchanged in those. You know, if anybody hasn't seen it, I would encourage them to look that up. Those moments of inspiration during the pandemic said to me, okay, we're not dead inside. Right. Our songwriting friends, our writing friends, our comic friends, they have to just look at it differently. To live life in a state of heightened anticipation that something cool is going to happen and it's your job to go find it puts you in a proactive place. Yeah. I'll kind of reveal one of my tricks going into a corporate event is people go, how can you be ready for that moment? And I think, well, I don't know if any of these jokes are going to be funny, 
I'm going to use, as you say, some instinct. But when I walk into that hotel that night, I walk in like I'm a participant of that event. And I look at that goofy flower arrangement and I read that poster on the wall and I go in my room and I read my mini bar menu and I say, oh, this stuff is expensive. And then I go, oh, wait, do I want to pay $14 for suntan lotion? No. So this is what the participant's going to feel like. Then I go down to where they sign in and I say to the people, they go, are you checking? I go, no, I'm speaking tomorrow, but I'd love to know what activities they're doing. And they go, oh, well, do you want to sign up for a sea salt massage or go skeet shooting or whatever? I was like, boom, boom, boom. These are all <laughs> areas that I can write on. I don't mm. labor over it. I just try to kind of get my headlines of all of that. And sometimes I'll just cross-reference that the skeet shooting was taking place at the same time as the women's tea party or whatever. And I'll go, what would that moment be like? So when I step in there the next day, I'll go show of hands who was skeet shooting, who was tea partying. And there's the joke, right? I build yeah. the intersection just yeah. on having a little bit of knowledge. Yes. It doesn't have to be the greatest joke in the world because it's disposable, but it's only good for that moment in time. Right. And if I don't take the shot, this is a sniper in a tower thing. One shot. Do I do it? Do I not do it? And many times I'll do it. And then if I have to do a Johnny Carson recovery from that, where it doesn't sure. land, then so be it. But even if the joke doesn't land, people feel seen and known in that moment. The delivery of any creative act is that empathy. It's making people feel seen and known. And I love this. I want to interview you right now. Actually, I need to have you on my show. You can. And then another time, I would love to come on. Your podcast is called The Accidental Creative, which is a part of your bigger brand. Ask any question you want. This is fascinating. So, so people look at someone like you and they just think, oh, what a talented guy. What they don't see is all of the work that you put in to that moment of delivery. They don't see the research that you're doing, the dots you're connecting behind the scenes. You walk in with an index. Okay, so, so a great magician, I'm going to make some magician enemies right now, but there's a technique or tool called indexes. Basically, if, if somebody selects a card, a magician can reach in their pocket and they can pull out that exact card because it's like they're, all of the cards are in there and they know where the cards are and they can pull it out. Right? So gonna, what you're doing is you're creating like an index of all of these different things that you can draw from. And in that moment, you make a decision. Am I going to go this way? Am I going to go that way? I'm going to put this thing together, that thing. That's the hard work that goes into the creative process. And then it's all about intuition in the moment. Then it comes down to your experiences, your skill, your uh, ability to read an audience. But it's all of that preparation that positioned you. And it's the same way for a designer. It's the same way for somebody giving a speech. It's the same way for a producer that is making a decision in the studio about a particular direction with a, a song that they're producing. It's all the same thing. They've got an index of decades of music, of guitar solos, of tones, of drum sounds, of all these things. And when they get in that moment, they've got 30 different options they can draw from because they've done the work because they've prepared for that moment. So here's my question for you. Okay. I know you talked about what you do at that event. What do you do in your life routinely to build that index so that you have that context for those moments? Are there practices or disciplines that you put in your life to position you for that moment? Yeah, I'll reveal a few things. And I, I didn't come to understand it fully until I was doing it daily, but I had kind of a balance of things. I cycle between humor, heart, and humanity. And that is, to me, my sweet spot. If I'm writing a play, I want to be sure there's a certain amount of pathos or a certain amount of take-home. But because I'm afraid of it being a drama, 
I want it to be funny. So I'm always dipping into one of those wells. And during the pandemic, I did spend a lot more time inspirationally on my posts and stuff. They were a little bit more heart driven because I felt like, oh, people kind of need to hear survival skills. And other times, if it's escape, then I'll go for the humor well. To strengthen the humor, I look at things certain ways. I don't have to get a laugh every minute and I can be serious at times, but I am always sort of paying attention to what makes something more accessible to humor. I want it to be fun, funny, and favorable. Like I don't want to shoot off the hip and say something that makes somebody uncomfortable. So there's that moment too, because I've been around a lot of people. They see me being funny and they want to be funny. They want to make a joke off the menu to the waitress. And then it's horrifying. And I go, oh, this is tough company because they think they're playing at the same level as you. And particularly with comedy, it can be seriously off base if you're not paying attention. Sure. But one, I surround myself by funny, interesting, creative people. I ask deeper questions if I'm looking for the humanity aspect. I try to unite instead of divide. And that includes with my sense of humor. Mm -hmm. So I think, okay, what's practical here? Oh, if I make fun of me, I hurt nobody. Mm -hmm. I think I learned to put some parameters on, which is if I make fun of fashion, then I'm not necessarily making fun of Todd's choice of shirt. I don't go, that's a dumb shirt, right? I go, who invented plaid? Now we're making fun of plaid, not Todd. Right. Yes. So it's kind of interesting that I do make some, I think boundaries, which everyone says, oh, creative people, they just can do anything. Well, those boundaries and restrictions actually help guide me into a better solution to a problem. Yes. Where I go, oh, okay, I'm looking at an audience that's this age. If I make my reference and it's about online dating and it's old people, they're not going to go on that ride. Yeah, and that's an important point because I think people do think of creativity. They think, oh, complete freedom. The more freedom I have, the better my ideas are going to be. But that's not true. And we see this over and over and over again in the research. What we need is bounded autonomy. We need freedom within limits. We need a, a way to direct our energy toward a solution If we have complete freedom, our efforts are going to wash out on the plane. A river with banks runs deep. A river without banks washes out. You need boundaries. You need a direction for that energy. But you do need a certain amount of freedom within that. And part of the struggle that I have with a lot of managers, and that's why I wrote the book Herding Tigers, right, is that they don't understand that balance between freedom and boundaries or as I called it in the book, uh, stability and challenge, right? Those are the two things we need. We need some stability of process, clarity of process, clarity of expectations, clarity of outcomes, all of those kinds of things. We need to know that the rules of the game aren't going to change halfway through while we're playing the game, right? We need to know that the process is clear, but we also need freedom. We need to be challenged. We want to try new things, take risks, but we need some permission to do that. That's important though. The word permission, critical. Not only do you need permission from the manager or the client or whatever, but you also need to have self-permission yes. for play, for freedom of moment to, to allow Spark to come. Yes. And we don't do that. And part of the reason is we artificially escalate the perceived consequences of failure. Um, you know, you mentioned earlier that when you do a lot of creative work under pressure, every individual project doesn't feel quite the same. Like when I walk on stage now to give a speech in front of 5,000 people, it doesn't really feel any different than when I'm walking on stage in front of 10 people because I've done it enough now that the size of the crowd doesn't intimidate me. It presents different challenges, but it doesn't intimidate me in the same way because I'm doing a lot of those. Now, 
the first time I did it, it was a very different situation, right? There's a guy named Neil Fury who researches procrastination. And he talked about this scenario where he would put a wood plank on the floor, you know, 10 feet long, six inches wide. And he would ask people, could you walk the length of that plank on the ground if I ask you to? And they say, well, yeah, of course, it's a wood plank on the ground. I'd have to be drunk not to be able to walk the plank, of course. He'd say, now imagine I suspend that plank 100 feet in the air between two buildings. Now, could you walk the length of that plank? And they'll look at the imaginary plank and look at him and say, no way, are you kidding? No way am I walking a wood plank 100 feet in the air. Well, what's changed about the technical skill required to walk the plank? Absolutely nothing, right? If you can do it on the ground, you can do it in the air. What's changed are the perceived consequences of failure, which in this case is plummeting to your death. So I kind of get it, right? But I think we kind of do this often as creative pros, we artificially escalate the perceived consequences of failure to the point that we don't act. We don't engage with that self-permission that you talked about because we are so inflating the perceived consequences of failure in our mind. And so this is why you know, I encounter 23, 24 year olds all the time who talk about like, well, I don't know, I can't take a risk. I can't do this thing. I can't. And I'm like, what do you have to lose? You're not married. You have no kids. You don't have a mortgage. That doesn't make that sense any more real in their mind, right? That perceived consequence in their mind is, is very palpable. Right. I think I will put the word fear as the highest crippler of anything creative. And that fear can be, as you say, failure. It can be any number of things. What are the expectations from others, from myself? And fear is an unknown thing. So you talked about your being on stage after the first time you knew a little more. Each time you've gone on, you know a little more. The tightrope analogy is a fantastic one because anybody who can walk a tightrope or has confidence that they can cross that area two feet off the ground, 2,000 feet off the ground makes no difference. So translate that to Warren Buffett making a financial investment. Would we put that kind of money up to buy a company? We would be panicked. But when he looks at buying a Colgate or somebody, he looks at the management staff. He looks at how much money he makes. Oh, oh, people buy toilet paper regularly. They buy toothpaste regularly. He's very, very systematic. And he's not looking at that as risk. He's looking at it as early reward by being able to invest. And you know what he doesn't do? He doesn't get rid of the managers or the product and start over. He's investing in a thing that he knows he can improve by bringing it out maybe in another way or sticking with it. And I think that all of those things can be related back to some form of fear. Yeah, absolutely. The counter to that fear is steady progress, A, right? It's making progress in a steady, meaningful way because as you do that, you tend to dispel that fear. You kind of shine light in the darkness because fear thrives in the darkness. The moment you walk into a room and turn the light on, suddenly it's not as intimidating. But I think also reminding yourself of who you are, what you value, what you've done, and what you're pursuing is really important. We often talk about this, this phrase, follow your passion. This is kind of something that we hear often in culture. And I have a kind of a love-hate relationship with that phrase because I like the phrase, but I think we misuse the word passion. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think when we talk about passion, we talk about something I like. It's something that I enjoy doing all the time. And, you know, I've, I've heard this thing, find something you love and you'll never work a day in your life. And I think both you and I, and probably many people listening would laugh in the face of that advice because it's so naive. The, the word passion in its root form comes from the word pati, which means to suffer. So when we say follow your passion, what we're really saying is 
follow your suffering. In other words, follow the <laughs> thing that you're willing to suffer on behalf of because the outcome matters more to you than your temporary discomfort. So when you identify a passion like that, I'm willing to walk through discomfort. I'm willing to do things I don't want to do every day, to do tasks I don't want to do every day in order to achieve an outcome that matters a lot to me, that drives me deeply. That's when you find something special. And when you say follow that kind of passion, I'm like, I'm all on board, right? But I'm sure you, like me, like I have to do all kinds of things I don't want to do in order to achieve the outcomes that I love in my work. And I don't care what your job is. Anybody who's performing at a high level has to walk through metric tons of crap to get to the outcome they want. And you know what? It's worth it in the end when you discover what that outcome is that matters to you. Refer to an outcome or destination. Be sure that the destination is somewhere you want to go. <laughs> yes. No, because many times people will take a job in order to have enough money to in order to take care of their lifestyle. And they realize that they're headed towards a retirement that is not even what their real pursuit is. Yeah. But they don't know it because it's out there and they're kind of having to build up a revenue or it's what their family expects of them. That's the thing that I find the most interesting is that uh, creative people often think differently than the family members or the people that want stability for them. Absolutely. If you're willing to lose sleep over or sleep on a couch of or do with any of these number of things to get to what it is that brings you a certain amount of happiness. The thing I take homage to is the idea that what do I have to do to be happy? And it's no, you need to be happy in order to do these other things. So you're not in pursuit of happiness. You're trying to invite happiness home where you can take it with you in all the things that you do. Yeah. And happiness is such an ephemeral thing anyway. I mean, the moment you think you've captured it, it's gone. I think what we're aiming for is joy, which is a deeper sense of satisfaction with life that is not dependent on circumstances, right? I have a friend and a neighbor, uh, Lauren Long, who told me once he went to this exact situation. He was in his early 20s. All of his friends were graduating school and getting law degrees and buying BMWs and doing all this stuff. And you know, at the time he was like, yeah, I'm just, I'm falling behind. I'm just falling behind everybody. Cause he was like a, like an art director at a, an agency, but he, what he really, really loved doing and wanted to do was to illustrate books, to write and illustrate children's books. And he recalled to me a conversation he had with his father, which many of us don't get this kind of advice, right? From our fathers. But he's like, I just, this moment is seared in my mind. He said he was talking to his father and he was telling him about all his friends who are getting married and buying houses and buying cars and he's falling behind. And his dad said, listen, Lauren, I've worked at the same company for decades. If you have a chance to find something that brings you life and to do that for a living, you have to chase after that. You have to do it. You have no choice, right? And he said that was the permission that he needed really to make that leap, right? In that moment. Mm. And he did. And, you know, of course, we always tie these stories up with nice bows. Like now he's a multiple New York Times bestselling <laughs> author who illustrated Barack Obama's children's book, who illustrated, you know, Amanda Gorman's children's book, you know. Awesome. Right. Fantastic. Which is great. That's phenomenal that he had that success. But here's the point. The point is, even if he had not had that success on the other end, he still made the right call to pursue the thing that he was willing to walk through in order to achieve an outcome that he desired. That's still the right call, even if you don't get that nice bow tied ending. Well, let me just say a comparison that I will often make to people, which is that I say, write your autobiography based on the chapters you want people to read mm -hmm. later. So if you'd have to turn the page after a divorce, what is that next chapter that's still being written? Yeah. And if you look at more of life as a charm bracelet, 
and each charm is a, a story you want to retell or, or a tattoo or anything of that nature, which is a storytelling moment where you can with glee say, this uh, happened to me at this time, which was great. And I did it for five years. And now I'm done with mm -hmm. that because it is a series of events. And sometimes it's forced on us. Yeah, it is. Something very, very strange happens. I moved from New Orleans to Austin based on Katrina coming through New Orleans. One of the absolutely worst and most devastating things that I saw happen around me. And you know what? I could have sadly approached Austin or I could embrace it and say, this is a new chapter, mm -hmm. right? And what do we do here? Yeah. And I look back at that as something that while forced on me, changed the way I focused on balancing my work life efforts with my children. And so it really does come down to how are we proactive and acting as a result of things, as opposed to reacting for sure. And also, and this is so important, I feel like we're doing sort of like a, let's talk to the 24 year olds right now, but, um, you know, we're both, you know, sort of later in our careers. I think it's fair to say success comes in layers. Success doesn't come all at once and everything is useful. Creativity is not efficient, but it doesn't waste anything. So my first five years of my career, I went to college and like any good college graduate, I decided I'm going to be a full-time musician for five years, right? So I spent five years touring around, playing music on stages, often as the opening act for people who couldn't care less who I was or why I was on stage. <laughs> Cause like, we're not here to see you. We're here to see this other band that's got the hits or whatever. But you know what that taught me in that moment? It taught me, first of all, how to go on stage in front of a hostile audience and win them over, which is invaluable if you're giving a presentation. It's invaluable when I'm doing speaking, right? But it's invaluable if I'm trying to present an idea to my boss. It's invaluable if I'm trying, you know, all those things. But that was a skill I learned. And also I learned how to work well with others. I learned how to be a part of a band when you have conflicts and you're on the road, and you're tired, but you still have to go out and be a pro. You have to go out and do a show and act like it's the first time you've ever played these songs, even though you've played them a hundred times in the last month, you have to act like it's your first time. And you have so many skills like that were illuminated for me. And I look back on it now and I sort of jokingly call it my misguided 20s. But at the same time, all of that is so useful in what I do right now. And I wouldn't trade it for anything, even though I was literally like at the end of the month, some some of those years, like at the end of the month, if I had like a hundred bucks in my bank account, I'd be like, great, let's go buy a steak dinner, right? It's like, <laughs> we're flush. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I did that sometimes when there was the video rental times, they didn't make you pay in for the videos until you return the video, I would be almost in the negative and I'd go, oh, I can celebrate with the rental of the video as long as I make the money by Friday. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, I mean, see, these, these are the stories that we don't tell, right? We always tell the backwards sanitized version of our biography, but I mean, I remember in my 20s, there were nights I would go to bed like with a knot in my stomach, like, am I gonna be able to make this work? Is this gonna happen? And you know what, the thing is, that didn't happen and that's okay. You know, the, the music career thing didn't happen, but that's okay. I had another career after that as a creative director. Now I've got an entirely different career as an author and a trainer and a speaker. You're gonna have multiple careers throughout your life for sure. No question, all of us are going to, especially when you're in those early stages of your life, that is the time when you need to have experiences that are gonna pay dividends later in your career. Yeah. Can I tell you what? I'll state this loud and proudly, that your obstacles often becomes your assets. Mm. And also your failures are really key to your success. 
I've gone through the same kinds of cycles as you have. And one of the things that I always was afraid was to admit where I had fallen down or I'd made a mistake. Yeah. My most recent piece is called Pat Hazel's Permanent Record. And I don't know if you know that term, but anything that you did wrong in your life was going to end up on your permanent record. Yes. And if anybody ever found that, it was going to keep you from success. So I decided I was going to find my permanent record and then defend it. Anything that I did wrong, which was a comic folly when I began. But because of the political environment, I hired a political opposition research company to look into me like I was going to become a senator. Oh, that's brilliant. Well, it became very serious. It was no longer a farce, even though it was still a comedy. Yeah. And then I had to defend my Facebook post. And it was a very, very telling. And then I also, one more step on that was now I built a show completely out of the lowest moments in my life hmm. that were things that I wasn't proud of. Yeah. And it seems like it's a biographical story about me, but in the end, it's a mirror reflecting how quickly a human being can be knocked off their pedestal. And then you have to look at yourself and say, oh, wait a minute, what are my greatest hits and what's going to outlive me when I'm gone? Yeah. It was looking at my dad's passing and realizing that organ donation and other things keep him alive now through medical studies and where his mm -hmm. legacy has to do more with a character choice than it did about how much money he made or those sorts mm -hmm. of things. And yeah. I'm telling you, if I hadn't matured, I probably wouldn't have taken the risk of writing about that stuff because it's a little awkward. Yeah, I remember being with a guy at a 7-Eleven where he wanted me to stuff beef jerky down my pants and shoplift it out of a store. That moment mortified and thinking, I will never admit this. I'll never expose this on the river, but we've all been in a compromising place. Sure. And so that's a placeholder for whatever it is you're thinking about while I tell the story. The real value is in that transfer yeah. of saying, do I hold shame in this and do I hide from it and keep my authentic self from coming out? Or do I rid myself of all this unnecessary weight? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the word shame because I do think that you talked about fear. I think that that shame is often another one of those forces that works against the creative process. We all have voices that speak to us. We all have narratives that that play into this. There's a guy named Martin Seligman, a positive psychologist, and he said there are really three core things that we do with experiences that we have. We make them permanent, we make them pervasive, and we make them personal. Maybe I fail at something or I, I make a bad mistake. And so like I failed becomes I will always fail because now it's a permanent mm. thing. That's a narrative that starts to play in our mind. We make them pervasive. I failed in this circumstance, so I'm going to fail everywhere because that's just what I do. I fail. And we make them personal. I failed, therefore I am a failure. And we start to wear these name tags around. Again, this is why looking back at your past successes and also making consistent daily progress is so important because that dispels some of these narratives, these myths. Um, I don't know about you. I always feel so much better at the end of the day. If I get any kind of writing done, I don't care what it is. It could be terrible. It could be like maybe the worst thing I've ever written. But if I just get the work done, I feel better at the end of the day. And part of that is because there is this pervasive narrative in my mind that, well, you're just, you're lazy. You're not that good. Mm -hmm. Your best work is behind you. These are narratives that play out in my head. The way I put those at bay is by making consistent progress in the direction of my ambitions. Yeah. I try to get up and write before the judge in my head wakes up. 
<laughs> I love that. Because the fact is, I'm not thinking, I'm a little groggy. I start to write, whether it's about feelings or humor, and it kind of doesn't matter. I'm just laying bricks to build the wall. Yeah. And yeah. I have to put a certain amount of them in. And that is really literally the hardest part of being a writer is doing the work. Yes, absolutely. And, and we're also terrible judges of our own work, right? I think sometimes people will read something and say, this is the best thing you've ever written. And I'm like, really? When I wrote it, it just felt like another thing. And that's what I mean when I say success comes in layers. As you develop your craft, as you get better and better at what you do, you're not always going to be the best judge. Uh, like there are things I was really excited about 10 years ago or 15 or 20 years ago that I look back now and I'm like, that was, that was terrible. It was like objectively just bad. I thought it was amazing at the time, but we're often the worst judges of our own work. And so it's not our job to judge the work. It's our job to produce the work, to continue. And then we can edit later. That's fine. But our job right now, Steve Pressfield, right? It's his thing of yeah. do the work, show up, do the work, fight the resistance, show up with your hard hat and your, your lunch pail. I've got a Steve Pressfield lunch pail that he sent me right behind oh, that's me. Myself, right. You know, sit down at the job site, do the work and pack up at the end of the day and go home. If you do that enough days in a row, you may not have that incredible fairy tale success, but you're going to live a life that is full of deep gratification for the body of work that you're building. Yeah. And it's a craft. And so that's the point. We've had Stephen Pressfield on this show and he paid a high compliment to your book, uh, Die Empty. Oh. Uh, he said, if you can read this book and not be inspired, you need a 100% full body and soul transplant. <laughs> you cannot get a higher endorsement than that. Okay. So we talked about, you know, early in your life versus late in your life. What was he like 50 maybe before he published his first book? I, I can't remember the exact age, but he was very late in life. He had all these careers, taxi driver. He was like in the Marines, no. I think, like did all these things. Yeah. He was a Marine, which is where he got his yeah. discipline. He was a screenwriter. He did all kinds of things, but yeah, before he really had a book that landed, he was quite a bit older. Yeah. And, and, you know, so I think, again, we don't do ourselves any service by pretending like if you don't achieve success by age 30, then your life is a waste. As somebody who is now, uh, I'm almost 50, right? I'll, I'll turn 50 next year, actually. That's a narrative that I have to pay attention to as well. My best work might very well be ahead of me. It might still be 10 years in the future, 15 years in the future. I can't fall prey to those cultural narratives that just kind of worships everything about youth. At 60, there's a tipping point where you begin to write in a legacy form, what do I want to leave behind versus when you're leaning into something and you're thinking, what do I have to achieve to impress people or to make money or to become famous? Yeah, the yeah. goal is a little bit different. And that, that is what's going to be left inside me if I don't complete this task. Yeah, well, probably to, to the point of your other project, your opposition research project, right? That's more of a legacy project. You're trying to prove a point with that project, if I'm not mistaken. It's not just some cool idea. Right. Well, I will tell you, just prior to that, I was writing a musical called Grounded for Life. And this is an ideation note based on what you said earlier about how we have an index. I was riding my bike at eight or 10 years old and, and was doing this title around in my head because I had heard the phrase that somebody was grounded for life. And I kept thinking, how is that possible? What happens when he's 16 and gets a license? Can't he drive away? When he's 21, can he beat his dad up? There was this story that was brewing most of my life over that phrase grounded for life. So when I wrote this musical with another guy, I thought to myself, what would it really be like to be grounded for life, to be stuck in your childhood bedroom at 35 or 40 <laughs> years old? 
And again, it started as a farce. Mm -hmm. And then I really realized as the play unfolded, I would say putting clay on the potter's wheel. And I didn't know if it was going to be a lamp or a vase or what yet. Then I started to realize, oh, that's what we all are. We're all grounded for life. We're stuck in a marriage. We're stuck in a job. We're stuck in something that we're trying to find our way out of. And the warden is ourself. Mm. We're the one that's keeping us restricted to this thing by not opening up. And in writing that play, and I've just taken it to a core moment where death visits this guy in his bedroom and he asks death what the key to happiness is. And death says, good news, bad news. The bad news, there's no key to happiness, but the good news, it's not locked. It comes down to that kind of one little line within the body of a two-hour work that I hope the take-home value is that somebody goes, oh, what am I doing to keep myself from going after the brass ring of life that's important to me? That it isn't getting married doesn't make me happy. Having a kid doesn't make me happy. It's what are you doing again on a daily basis? Where's the access point to joy or to love or to you know, a stewardship of some kind that you're helping somebody else out? Those are really where the moments come together. I've decided that my job is to make things and to make things happen. Hmm. I'm not just a magician or just a comedian or just a writer. It doesn't matter how I create the item. I think yeah. that's what drew me to creativity was I go, oh, I'm working in a broader discipline here, which is my joy of doing this podcast is that one day I'm talking to an aerialist, the next day I'm talking to a ventriloquist, to an author or a speaker. And I think, yeah, this is yeah. where the hopeful people live is in the creative space. Yeah. Well, and that's because I think you have to have a degree of optimism in order to be a creative, right? To be somebody who's making things, you have to have a sense that what I'm doing isn't for naught, that there's something on the other side of this that's going to create a better possible future. I think the danger for us, doing a lot of thinking lately about bravery and what is it that goes into being brave. And I've come down to really two qualifiers. I think you have to have a sense of optimism. You have to believe in a better possible future, but that's not sufficient in and of itself. You have to have a sense of agency. You have to believe that I can do something to bring about that better possible future. If you lack agency, but you have optimism, then you're going to become a nihilist. You're going to say, well, yeah. you know, I believe there's a better possible future, but I can't do anything about it. So it doesn't matter. You know, If you have a sense of agency, but you lack a sense of optimism, then you're going to become bitter because it doesn't matter what I do. And so we have to maintain both of those. And so for anybody who's maybe struggling to make brave, creative choices. I think you have to root yourself in what is that positive narrative, that positive future that I believe in, that optimistic, positive future, not blindly optimistic, not naive, but I believe there's a realistic, optimistic future, that there's a better future there. Do you believe that narrative? And are you claiming a sense of agency to bring it about? Or if you lack that sense of agency, what's it going to take for you to get there? Maybe you need to develop some skills. Maybe you need to build some relationships. Maybe you need to put yourself in a situation where you gain some experiences. But once you are moving in that direction, you're going to begin to reclaim that sense of agency. And in my experience, that's when people do really brave work creatively Mm -hmm. is when they have both of those things. I would equate it to a pipeline. If you want to get oil to the well and up and out, where do you have to have the rights to the land? So each part of that pipe, whether it's education, I need to learn, partnership, oh, I need somebody with money. If you have that, if you get a clear sense of how you build the pipeline to the well to get it to come up, then it actually gives you some 
direction. Yeah. It's like checking a series of boxes on a board game to get to the end. Not to willy-nilly wait for the phone to ring or to sort of hope somebody will tap you on the shoulder and suddenly ask you to be in charge of something. But it's sort of to look at all those options and it really does add up. I think things come to you at the right time. Bravery is a great one. I'm so glad that you mentioned that too, because it is not brave necessarily to be a person that is runs into a burning fire. It's kind of what's your intent. That's right. Yeah, that, that's I think what you're talking about is the, how we conflate bravery with boldness. Right? right. Boldness is not the same thing as bravery. Boldness can be, I'm just going to stand up in the public square and say something really stupid and annoying and trollish and look at how brave I am. Well, no, that's not bravery. Bravery always involves empathy. Bravery is you're engaging in some act on behalf of other people in some capacity. There's some degree of self-sacrifice anytime you're being brave. To create something for others is an act of self-sacrifice because you're putting it out there and there's potential people are going to reject it. Boldness is just, I'm going to get up and blather on and be an idiot, or I'm going to do something provocative. It's not empathetic in any way. It's not serving anybody. I'm just doing it as an act of self-service. That's not bravery. That's very different. I actually think that that is a great distraction. And among other things, I get the creativity the things, the distraction, doubt, denial, those things come up. And those are the things that put the brakes on us yes. where the more focused things are to create a deadline. People always say, oh, one day I'm going to write a screenplay. One day is no day. Yeah. And you know, it's that old story, right? Of the, the guy who's talking to his friend. He says, I've always wanted to learn how to play piano. And the guy said, well, that'd take, take me five years. And he said, well, how old will you be in five years if you don't learn to play piano? Right. <laughs> Great. So you want to write a screenplay? Well, but I'm 50. You know, I'd, I'd be 55 by the time I finish it. Well, how old will you be if you don't finish it? Like, go ahead, start, right. do the thing. People need to claim more permission to just do things. And you know what? Don't show it to anyone. Writing a screenplay does not mean I'm going to produce a Broadway musical. Like that's not the same thing. Those are very different goals with very different things involved. Write the stupid screenplay, write the book, write the music, write the song, produce the album, do the thing, have the conversation, reconcile the relationship, all the petty crap that gunks up people's creative process and just their life in general. There's so many things I'm like, that's the thing that unreconciled relationship that you're holding on to with bitterness. That's the thing you're going to take to your grave with you. Right. Listen, the other person doesn't even have to be involved. You can forgive that person right now and they don't even have to be involved and you can just release them from that right now. And you know what? On the other side of that, you're going to experience freedom and you're probably going to produce some of the best work of your life. You don't even realize how that bitterness is clinching you up. I mean, it's little things like that. I'm like, why are people making these life decisions? I get it. It's hard. Right. We are hurt. I mean, it's just tragic how hurt some people have been by other people in their life. I totally get that. And I'm not discounting it at all. What I'm saying is we allow things to clog up, like you said, that series of pipes of our creative process. And we're not aware that that is the thing that's standing between us and our ability to produce work that we're going to point to with pride, that body of work that we're going to point to with pride. If we were as good at writing our story as we are at writing excuses, we would be very prolific. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Because the stories people tell you of why they can't meet their deadline are always these big, fantastical series of things. And you go, you just spent five minutes telling me a story about why you can't write a story. 
Yeah. I mean, Seth Godin is famous for saying people talk about writer's block. Nobody gets talker's block. Neither one of us right now, other than me a few seconds ago, neither one of us are, are like, well, I just can't think of any words to say. Right. No. The reason we get writer's block is because we're self-editing as we're writing. We're thinking this isn't good enough. It's not good enough. I don't have a good enough idea. Whereas if we just sat down and did the work, the quality will take care of itself eventually. Right. Well, listen, you and I could talk forever and I would enjoy that because every chapter in your book, every daily practice that you pitch in the Daily Creative, they're all inspirational. They're insightful. If people like what they're hearing here, I think the best thing to do would be send them to toddhenry.com and that will get you to his Accidental Creative Podcast. You're very, very generous with golden nuggets of value. I feel like there's something where you're there as a spirit guide to sort of just remind them it's okay, get this done today and then you can go have fun or do this yeah. each step along the way. And so you're encouraging people to create a playlist. And by that, I don't mean a music list. I mean an actual ways to play yeah. with their material, their ideas, and get that stuff built into something that can become a bigger piece of work. It's been inspiring to me and I hope to everyone else today. I'm, I'm so grateful that you invested the time to come on and say hello. Well, thank you for inviting me. And again, I just want to reiterate, it, it is the most deeply gratifying thing to me when people like yourself find anything that I do useful, because I know that you know better than almost anyone what it takes to do this for a long period of time. So thank you so much for the kind words. Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas, with sound editing by the steady hand of Tucker Hazel. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp, with additional production support and sanity provided by Delilah Lovejoy, Marcus Siniskalki, Tony Deo, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's, or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You're hearing that right. It's dot .fun, as in cross your T's and dot your fun. Ciao for now. Staring at an empty page, stepping on a ghostlit stage, a circus of uncertainty. Your call.